I've got a brand new offer and free electrolytes for everyone, even if you've made a purchase before. So listen up. If you're active and follow a whole foods diet or you're stressed and struggling with adrenal dysfunction, you need to be thinking about electrolyte replacement. You lose electrolytes when you sweat and when you go to the bathroom and being active, especially when it's hot, can drain your electrolytes. I'm not just talking about working out. I'm talking about pool days and gardening and running around cheering your kids on at games. These electrolytes have to be replaced through diet and supplementation. And if you're deficient in electrolytes, it shows up as dizziness, muscle cramps, headaches, fatigue, sleep disturbances. And those stars when you stand up, especially on workout days, which was my experience, Element makes grab-and-go electrolyte replacement supplementation. There's absolutely no sugar, gluten fillers, or artificial ingredients, and it's paleo-friendly. It's travel-friendly, too, and great for kids. My kids love it. I've been using Element regularly on workout days, days where I'm working out out or working outside in the yard, and it's made such a difference for me. Everyone gets... A free gift with purchase now. Element comes in boxes of 30. There is free shipping on all orders. And now all orders will get a free eight pack, which has all the flavors of Element. To get it, go to drinklmnt.com forward slash wellfed. Use the code wellfed to get your free sample eight pack with your order. Again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash wellfed and use the code wellfed. You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women podcast. This is episode number 385. I am your host, Noelle Tarr of CoconutsAndKettlebells.com. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a National Strength and Conditioning Association certified personal trainer. My website is CoconutsAndKettlebells.com. If you go to the website, click podcast at the top, you'll find all of the past shows and show notes. So if you hear a link, check the show notes. It'll be there. Today is for everyone with chronic digestive issues, including SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. If you have digestive issues and you don't know what that is, you're about to find out. And my gut tells me, pun intended, it will be quite helpful. I have invited back Sarah K. Hoffman, the woman behind the very popular gut health Instagram account, a gutsy girl. Today, we're going to dive into her new book and answer all of your detailed questions about fixing your gut and SIBO. We're going to talk a lot about little things, but also the big things. So we'll start with some general questions like, why does my stomach always hurt? What's the root cause of my digestive issues? What is the root cause of SIBO? Why does it keep coming back? And we'll also get into some more detailed questions from you guys like probiotics and which are right and how to move forward once you've healed your gut and what are the signs and the symptoms of, oh my gosh, it's coming back and what can I do to stop it from coming back? So 
I'm excited to dive in. Sarah K. Hoffman is a certified health coach and founder of A Gutsy Girl, which is an online community geared towards women who are looking for reasonable approaches for healing IBS, IBD, and SIBO, to name a few. After years of struggling with her own health issues and considering there must be more to healing than the answers she was given, she began devoting every last second to studying, researching, and practicing all things gut health and gut healing. She's the author of The Leaky Gut Meal Plan, and her new book is called A Gutsy Girl's Bible, A 21-Day Approach to Healing the Gut. This is on Amazon. I will link to it in the show notes. She's also the host of a Gutsy Girl podcast. Welcome, Sarah. I'm super excited to be back. I feel like I absolutely love coming on your show. And I well, I mean, we're already best friends because I listen to you <laughs> and or you and Stephanie all the time. So I already know everything that's going on in your life and whatever. So we're good to go. We can just jump into questions, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, who, well, tell me about you for a second. How's your podcast going? Good. I, I actually am finding that I love the the podcast form of content a lot because I feel like you can share a lot more and be Mm -hmm. more descriptive and able to help people versus I do still love to write. I think I'm going to be always be a writer at heart, but I just, it's so time consuming. And Mm -hmm. so actually what I started doing on my podcast, I haven't even launched it yet, but I not like you, you are such a machine when it comes to your podcast and producing episodes. I've only done two per month. So it's been kind of a slow rollout. So I'm going to start doing these short episodes every other weeks for like, just like 15 to 20 minutes. And I'm kind Mm -hmm. of excited for that kind of like a happy medium, but yeah, the podcast is going great and it's fun. So that's awesome. I love the the short podcast, short episode ideas. I just like I've even thought about adding a second one. Um, and I don't know why I think I can actually handle that because I can <laughs> I can barely handle what I'm doing now. <laughs> but um, yeah, I love the idea of having a short episode. And I think that it's valuable because you people honestly, sometimes like I find myself getting lost and like, I forget what podcast I was listening to or whatever, because it's long. Now, listen, I like long podcasts. I'm not going to lie. Like, give me all the content, right? And I'll, I'll listen to it when I'm ready. But there is tremendous value, I think, in just being able to listen to a full podcast on your drive home from dropping off the kids or whatever, you know, and starting and finishing it and like, actually getting it accomplished. So um, yeah, I I like the short ones in the car too. But like, for instance, your podcast is is a good hour. And that's exactly how long my walks are around the lake. And so (laughs) it's a perfect opportunity for me to just be with whatever and whatever Mm -hmm. podcast I'm listening to and nature. So I love Love it. it. I love it. Okay, so you got a new book. It's called A Gutsy Girl's Bible, A 21-Day Approach to Healing the Gut. Um, And you just launched that. And I felt like this was the perfect opportunity to have you back on and really dive into some of these deeper questions that we've had over the years from people specifically about chronic digestive issues and SIBO. I do feel like we, we also, of course, have some general questions that we're going to talk about everything from, you know, why does my stomach hurt and what is actually the root cause and how do I figure that out? But we'll also get to some deeper things. So if you are listening and you're like, uh, what is I just need some general stuff too. first go listen to um, the interview that Sarah and I did. It's episode 
325. And I think it's called Fixing Chronic Digestive Problems um, with Sarah K. Hoffman. That's the first episode we did together. We talked a lot about generals. We are going to touch on some generals here too, but this is going to be sort of a 2.0. So before we start getting into questions, I kind of wanted to go over just a few things that I think will be helpful for people. What exactly is SIBO? And is it something that is hard to get diagnosed in today's culture? Like, is this something that a lot of doctors and gastroenterologists know about? Or is this still something that is not quite recognized yet? Okay, so let's first start with what SIBO is. SIBO is an acronym that stands for Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth. And I'm really excited that you and I are having this conversation, diving more into the topic today, because I just had a really lengthy conversation with Dr. Nerala Jacoby, and she is one of the SIBO pioneers. She created the biphasic diet. Anyone that's ever heard of SIBO has probably heard of her and or that diet that's specific for SIBO. But I think the timing is just really great right now because all of the things that I have learned and practiced on myself since I was also diagnosed with it and healed from it, she really confirmed. And then I learned even more. So I am super excited to be able to share this stuff with your community. But that's what SIBO is. Is it hard? Okay. So SIBO, that's what it stands for. But what SIBO is, is it's basically an overgrowth of bacteria, just like it says, in the small intestine. Now, obviously, we have a small intestine, we have a large intestine, and there is nothing wrong with bacteria. In fact, when bacteria is produced in a plethora of amounts in the large intestine, it's fantastic. That is what microbial diversity is all about. That is what we strive to create when our guts are healthy. That's every day what I'm focusing on. How can I continue to create this diverse microbiome? But we want that to be contained and stay within the large intestine. The problem is when those bacteria creep up in to the small intestine and then produce an overabundance of them, that's when the problems occur because that is not what where they're supposed to live and it's not what the small intestine is supposed to be supposed to consist of. Something that not a lot of people know is it's in our small intestine where our nutrients are absorbed. And so that's what the primary focus of the small intestine is supposed to be, not to be a house for all of these random bacteria. So when you have SIBO, it's just this overgrowth in the small intestine. Now, um, the second part of your question is you had asked if it's hard to diagnose. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it is hard to diagnose per se. I will say that there are definitely false positives um, and also false negatives. Is that, is that right? Um, but I wouldn't say it's hard to. Now, when you ask about doctors being on board with it, I would say they are coming around to being on board with it far more than when I was diagnosed, which was in 2014. But like I, I had this whole conversation with Dr. Jacoby and she said that they're coming around to the idea of it because there are so many more stomach and digestive issues, period. You mm. can't ignore that. And as a doctor, you can't ignore that. The reason I I think from a conventional standpoint, why doctors still do the eye roll is because there's, it's just 
not as well researched as, you know, like a templated IBS or, or other things that they've been well trained on. It's not their fault. It's just, that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. So I think the key there really is that you have to find the right practitioner that will listen to you and that is educated in it, or you really aren't, you'll, you'll spin your wheels forever. The last thing I want to say about SIBO is just, um, some of the symptoms because, people might be listening to this and they're like, okay, well, what is it? Well, like, how would I know if I have it? So obviously the very classic symptoms are bloating, diarrhea, and or constipation, depending on if you are hydrogen or methane dominant with your SIBO. Um, one thing that is kind of uh, key here is when you experience it. So some people will get to the end of the day and they feel miserable and they they're bloated and constipated. Typically, I mean, that can indicate SIBO, but Dr. Jacoby told me that it's usually like within 30 minutes of eating, like you experience it immediately. And that's, that was my personal experience as well. Like I could eat something within 10 minutes. I looked like I was nine months pregnant. So usually, you know, it almost immediately, uh, definitely if you are getting your levels tested, any kind of vitamins, anything tested, you would likely have a B12 deficiency. Um, SIBO really robs you of that. It robbed me of it so much so that I, when I was diagnosed, I had to do B12 injections to my stomach. Uh, you might have rashes or acne. I had perial dermatitis, a fatigue, and I would guess that the fatigue is coming from the B12 deficiencies, food sensitivities in general, headaches, and then really all of the above. <laughs> a lot of people mm -hmm. have all of the above. So there's just like a very high level overview of what SIBO is. Yeah. What are, from your book, you talk about the three pillars of ultimate gut healing, because my brain, when you're talking about all these things, my brain always goes to like, well, what's the cause of all of this? Like, what's the root cause? But in in truth, there's a lot of things that are the root cause and, and we'll get to those in, in a second. But for you, you have these pillars, which I think are foundational to gut healing. So in other words, how do we actually address those root causes? So talk to me about those three pillars and why they're so important. Yep. And I'm just going to skim very high level and tell you what they are because they are super foundational. I am extremely passionate about all three and I go into so much detail in them in my gut healing for beginners course. So, I mean, it's literally a week long conversation. So <laughs> the three pillars, number one is diagnosis. Number two is diet. And number three is lifestyle from a very high level. You look at those and you say, there's a couple questions people ask me. One, do they go in order? My answer is yes and no. The reason is that if you've just been having some sort of stomach issues, do I think you need to go through all of the diagnosis immediately? Absolutely not. Don't waste your time and don't waste your money. I think there are so many things that we can do from a lifestyle and some dietary changes immediately to see like, okay, that's all it was. I've just been drinking too much booze, coffee, staying up late. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. you don't need to run and do that immediately. If you've been having problems for any length of time, absolutely, positively, a thousand percent, stop relying on Dr. Google and go and get an appropriate diagnosis because without the appropriate diagnosis, you cannot make the correct changes in order to heal. You can make changes, but they might not be right and they could be making you worse. So that's why yes and no for the diet and the diagnosis part. The second part is the diet 
And, you know, when I first started my healing journey, I probably would have been on this podcast and I would be telling you, okay, let's try to figure out the best diet because the diet is the thing. Today, I think the diet is the least important of the three by far. And I think the problem is that we have made it the primary focus in all of the wrong ways. And I could go on and on and on and on about that. And it's not even that I think that diet doesn't have a place because I absolutely do. I just think that as a gut healing and then a gut health community, we have put ourselves into this corner that diet is the only thing. And the more foods I can take out, the faster I'm going to heal and the better my badge of pride looks on me. And when I did that, I will tell you, it only put me more into a downward spiral. So diet is the second pillar. And the third pillar is the lifestyle one. And this one would definitely be the third one for a very important reason. And that is you never, ever, ever get to stop on and in the lifestyle pillar. I am fully healed, uh, clear colonoscopy and endoscopy as of 2018, but I will tell you that I have never stopped focusing on the lifestyle pillar. And because of it, I believe that is why I was able to heal for good forever. And so the lifestyle pillar really is all the other things, which can include the medications, the supplements, the your sleep or lack thereof it, the stress, which is the biggest piece to this whole puzzle, I think. And there are so many layers to it. It just includes all, I mean, even the things you put on our skin, our skincare, our makeup, um, body, everything. It includes mm -hmm. everything else in our lives that honestly makes or breaks how we continue on healing or lack thereof. So those are, that's a very high level view of the three pillars. You talked about in your book, like an emotional side of illness and healing. What do emotions have to do with our gut health? Everything. Gut brain <laughs> connection is so real. I, and, and this just goes back to what I had just said, how I used to focus immediately on diet. I focus a hundred percent now on the lifestyle, not a hundred percent, 80% on lifestyle now and really emphasizing this to people. The emotional side of illness though, really is this idea that when you get sick and when you don't know what's wrong because you don't have an appropriate diagnosis and all you've been doing is going down at the Dr. Google spiral, you've been self-diagnosing, you've been doing templated diet after templated diet, and usually several of them at one time, so you're now eating five foods, you're left in this place where you're asking questions like, what if I never get better? Should I be eating more? Should I be eating less? Are my workouts too much? Should I stop working out altogether? Maybe I am not, you know, you ask these questions and it is so, so taxing and draining. And the one thing that I never, ever want people to think is that I don't relate to these thoughts and that I, I don't know this place that people can find themselves in because I know these thoughts because I once thought them all. The thing about the emotional side of illness is that it's something that we absolutely have to address. We have to understand what we're thinking and why we're thinking them, what pieces to the puzzle they're pointing to, and also just knowing that the emotional side of illness is so real. And my best, best piece of advice for this is if you can talk to someone go do it. You mm -hmm. need to absolutely focus on that. I, I say this all the time. If I had a million dollars, 
I would spread the money to help people get physical or to get verbal therapy and to have a therapist and someone to talk things through because it changed the trajectory of my healing. And I believe in it so much. Thank you for that. Okay. Questions from the community. We're going to start general here. Um, this one is from Cara Dalmaccio, I believe. These are Instagram names, guys. Some of these are Instagram names, so bear with me. Um, why does my stomach hurt after almost everything I eat? I eat very clean slash organic and no sugar. I think that... If she goes back and listens to everything that I have just said, she might have some aha moments because when I listen to this, the first thing and the only thing that I hear, because that's what was said is I eat very clean slash organic and no sugar. So the only thing that is being focused on here is the food, which I'm not, I also really don't know what clean means anymore. Um, because it can be so many different things. But my, my best, my, I have a few thoughts on this. So the first thing that I would say is to think about when you are eating all of the other things that are going on. I have a post all about, is it more about what we're eating or how we're eating? Because so many people forget that our digestion begins before food even touches the mouth. There are natural digestive enzymes in our saliva. When we think about food, we start salivating. If we don't even have that to begin with, the whole digest digestive process is already a little bit off. So I wonder about her. She's eating these great foods, so that's awesome. But what is the state when you're eating them? The other thing I would say is, Take a look at what you're eating in general and just give it a full three days. Write things down. I never want people to become obsessive. So I never, in my journal, I teach this too. I don't teach people, yep, a half cup of beans, a half cup. No, skip that. It's too much time. It's too exhausting. You just have to understand in general. Are you eating a lot of beans and you know whatever else, but just track it. I had beans, a burger, ketchup, da, da, da. afterwards. I felt miserable. I felt great. Just keep track of it for a full three days and, and really understand what's happening. And the last thing I will say is, why does your stomach hurt after everything you eat? Do you know what is, if there's anything that is wrong with you today? Ha, do you have a diagnosis? Because that also could be part of it. And what you're eating might not be in alignment with that diagnosis. So there's a lot of things. Yeah, I will say I remember back in the day, like when everybody was doing strict paleo and even now, of course, the cutting carbs and all of that's very popular. But paleo and eating very low carb and sometimes you have this perception, oh, I'm eating clean. I'm not eating bad foods. And what ends up being your reality is you're eating a ton of roughage and things that can be very hard on your digestion. So if you're not eating enough and you are you have these nutrient deficiencies, which, you know, that's, of course, we're not saying that this is the case. But a lot of times when people think, oh, I'm eating super clean and they're very restrictive, they're one, not eating enough. So they have these nutrient deficiencies, which can also lead to digestive problems because you're not getting enough nutrients for your body to actually produce the things that it needs to digest your food 
properly. So, you you know, nutrient deficiencies can lead to that. But if you're eating just a ton of roughage and only clean foods and you're not eating like carbohydrate and starch and, and rice and things that are um, good like bulk foods, bulking foods, it can become really um, hard on your digestion. And I remember a lot of people doing strict paleo, they'd wake up and have super loose stools like every morning because they basically removed all of that beneficial um, substrates for their their gut health to thrive. So yeah, exactly. And that's that's also what I'm talking about with the diagnosis, because I'm sure she doesn't have this. I'm not saying everyone does. I'm saying, though, if she did have SIBO and she's eating super, quote unquote, clean, a lot of those foods are high FODMAP, which would go back to my theory and my idea and teachings around gut health and gut healing. She might need to be in more of a gut healing phase versus the health, which would be what she's potentially doing currently. I am so excited to share 20% off my favorite adaptogen blends with you. Research shows adaptogens can balance cortisol, combat fatigue, enhance focus, ease depression and anxiety, and support proper hormone function. The more I researched this, the more I realized the easiest and best way to enjoy adaptogens is with superfood blends that can be added to water. I found Organifi and now I love it. Organifi has an amazing little thing called Red Juice that is a red berry antioxidant blend that has cordyceps, rhodiola, and reishi. Cordyceps boosts energy, immunity, and stamina. I drink it during every podcast recording now. And when I'm stressed out and not sleeping well, I take green juice mid-morning. And guys, I finish every day now with either gold or gold chocolate. So this is a mixture of reishi and calming adaptogens and turmeric. It's either, it's kind of like a hot chocolate or like a turmeric warm drink at the end of the night. You just mix it with warm water and it has helped me so much. It's way more effective than the sleepy tea I was drinking. So they're both the same drink, just different flavors, gold or gold chocolate. I love it. I've totally fallen in love with Organifi. All their superfood adaptogen blends are 100% certified organic. They have high quality ingredients. They are free of fillers and they taste taste really good while also providing a clinical and effective dose of adaptogens. You can support your body, energy, immunity, and stress with Organifi. Organifi takes pride in offering the best tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com forward slash wellfed. Our code well fed will get you 20% off, which is a awesome discount. Organifi, so that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash well fed. Go to that link, use our code well fed for 20% off. Okay. This is from Denise Mills. She says, is it normal to have some bloating at the end of the day? Since I've gotten rid of gluten and dairy, I'm so much better, but my belly is always bigger in the evening. Well, personally, I don't think that bloating is normal. I know that it is common and I know that people like to normalize it, but I don't, I wouldn't say that it's normal. Now, I'm not saying that if it's just a little bit every once in a while, I mean, you're fine, you're fine. But if it's like every single day you're bloated at the end of the day, that is not normal. So as I had said earlier, uh, one of the distinctions that Dr. Jacoby had mentioned was that if you bloat immediately after eating, that's a SIBO sign or symptom. So this, this is probably, this might not be that, 
but is it something? Probably, but it could also just be, honestly, you got rid of gluten and dairy. Uh, One thing I would say is don't get rid of anything else. Don't get rid of entire categories, Um, but just pay attention maybe to the things that you are eating during the day. If it's happening every single day, is there, is there a certain pattern um, but again, I, I don't ever think that bloating every single day at the end of the day is normal. Mm-hmm. I will just say this, too, because maybe it's not bloating. Um, maybe. I mean, how do I say this? Um, this is the opposite side of the coin. A lot of women think that their body and their belly like should not change and that we should, you know, the, the whole stupid trick of like, you know, wear really tight pants to dinner. Your stomach has to expand when you eat food and digest food. Bloating, yes, not not necessarily a normal thing. That could be a sign that something is wrong. But like your stomach actually does have to expand and adjust to food. And our culture is like so anti this. And it's it's just a sign of of just toxicity when it comes to women and their how, you know, how our society thinks that their relationship should be with their bodies. Like norm fluctuations are normal. And also like your like pants being a little tighter at the end of the day, that's normal. Okay? That's what the body does. Yes, and I I could not agree with you more. I think I'm ta- talking about the feeling. So like when I think of bloating, I think of the feeling that I used to have where I would describe it as little gremlins poking against myself. Like it it hurt. You know what I mean? Right. It's not. No. Yeah. Absolutely. You should you should not be the exact same when you wake up as when you go. But the pain level yes. is what I'm. I think what I'm more talking about. And also, by the way, don't wear tight jeans to dinner or whatever because that will make you even worse. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Yeah, no, I I totally hear you. Okay. So Sam says, what is the actual root cause of SIBO? Low fab. I did a low FODMAP diet and supplements and prescription drugs. Drugs only seem to work for a short amount of time until it comes back. It feels like there is never an attack on what is actually causing it. This is the million dollar question yeah. for the SIBO community, but I am going to give you the four things directly from Dr. Jacoby. I actually wrote about this back in 2019. And even though these are four things, I think they need to be broken down even more. But the one thing I want to say to you, Sam, is that <sighs> low FODMAP diet and supplements and prescription drugs, they work for a short amount of time. That That is true if you're not getting to the root cause and it will relapse over and over and over again. And my best piece of advice is you have to find someone who is well-versed in SIBO. I had the exact same experience. I relapsed like four or five times before I healed for good. So um, some of the major categories of causes, number one is motility, and that was my cause. However, what I want to say about that is that it's motility from a very surface level, but there's, but then you have to also ask like, okay, well, what caused these motility issues? For me, it was low stomach acid caused by blah, 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 blah. Like it's, you do kind of have to go down that in order to fully uncover it. But motility really is just your small intestine has this cleansing wave that sweeps bacteria towards the colon. And if for whatever reason, motility is off and that's not happening, SIBO will reoccur over and over and over again. Um, something that not a lot of people know, though, is that there's some conditions that do affect this wave, like post-infectious IBS, hypothyroidism, and um, like chronic 
infections like Lyme disease and viral infections, which are very common for a lot of women, especially like with the hypothyroidism and things like that. So I would say that is probably of the people that I talk to and just have researched, that's probably the number one reason. Um, But then there's other things like just digestion. Again, you have so many digestive juices, um, including stomach acid, which also connects to motility. You have bile from your gallbladder, pancreatic enzymes, and so on and so forth. And if for whatever reason, you know, they, they help you digest your food, but they also have the function of keeping your bacteria in check. So if they're not functioning appropriately, then your SIBO can reoccur. Um, Outflow problems would be the third one. This category means just that something is impeding on the normal flow of food through the intestines. Uh, Sometimes people can have this from a previous surgery or endometriosis. I know Dr. Jacoby sees a lot of women that have endometriosis because it causes scar tissue and then adhesion to form. And so then you just have the flow problems. I would say this is a smaller category, but it's definitely a category. And then the last one would be if you're on other medications. I am a huge proponent of any and all medications that are absolutely necessary. And so and that's very different thinking from what I used to think. However, it's you still have to mention it as something that could potentially be going against your SIBO healing efforts. But mostly what they say for this is they include things like acid blockers, like uh, Nexium, morphine, narcotics, and then maybe even thyroid medication. But I don't, I don't, I don't think that because I take thyroid medication, but maybe for some people. So those are the four. So I would tell I, all I would say is just to think about those and really like you just have to, you have to sit still with yourself and your thoughts and your medical charts and all the things. And I think a light bulb will, will come on for one of those. Mm-hmm. This is from Pam. She says, I'm wondering why on some days everything I eat goes right through me. I get cramps and diarrhea. And this honestly, Sarah, is a, like a really common thing that I think I've seen with a lot of my clients, which is like, well, I don't know. Some days everything goes right through me and I'm it happens on days where I'm eating clean and it happens on days where I eat crappy, you know, quote unquote, because that's this is the client talking. But it's like it, I, there's no way to pinpoint it. It just all of a sudden some days are really bad. So why? from your perspective, what might be causing that? Well, one thing that you have to keep in mind is that with food intolerance, it can take up to 72 hours for you to react. So this is why a lot of times people say, well, I just ate something and it went through me. Okay. It could be, it it could be as simple as that, but it could also be because of something that you had a few days ago. I also will say that people say some days. And so I guess you also have to think about what what's happening from an emotional and a mental standpoint on those some days, because diarrhea has been one of the IBS symptoms that's definitely correlated with stress or with things like coffee or with things like um, just different life circumstances that happen on any given day. I I do think that there is and can be a food component, but I don't always necessarily think that it's a direct correlation. I don't know what you've seen in your practice, Noel, but um, no, I would agree. It, I would yeah, agree. it's it's so so hard to know. But oh, here here's one thing that I did want to say about that. If you would have said why it's happening all the time, 
and that you're having cramps and diarrhea, I would tell you that you absolutely need to seek some medical attention. There's, I have a, I, I do a lot with the bristle stool charts. I'm fascinated by poop, obviously. Um, <laughs> and, and people always are like, okay, well, what if I'm a number one or a number seven sometimes, but usually I'm a three to a five or whatever. I'm like, that's, that's actually totally, completely normal and common. It's when we have things that are going on over a longer time period that you really have to start paying attention to it. And if you're saying, wondering why on some days and your some days are like every third day, this is happening, then there's something more going on and you really do need to, to get it checked out. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I've, I've noticed too, or what always comes to my mind is it, I think it's very normal to have some random day as things go right through you because honestly, no day is the same. So everything impacts your gut. And this is where we have this removal in our society of actually what is impacting impacting our gut. Because like you said in the beginning, it's not always just the food. We always go, well, what is it? What is it about what I'm eating? A lot of the time it has nothing to do with what you're eating. It has everything to do with your stress and and all the other things that are impacting you, your anxiety, the work stress, your, did you get in an argument? Were you in the car when you were eating? Like all of these, you know, do you, have you, do you have an underlying trauma that you have not dealt with? Um, and so those things can impact us very randomly and at different times. And I think that if, you know, your lifestyle pillar that, that is perfectly describes why, you know, it's so important to have that, um, and understand the importance of stress management and all that stuff. So sometimes people overlook those little things. The other note that I will say too is the dose oftentimes is the mm-hmm. most isn't an important thing to consider too. So did you eat a, a little bit of yogurt or did you eat a ton of yogurt? You know, to, and so, so well, I had yogurt the other day and I was fine. You know, people say that a lot. Oh, I had I had this earlier and I was fine. But sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's not. It's like well, that doesn't mean that you should just always, you know, eat eat that food. Maybe that food is what's causing you a problem and you just have to look at it, you know, accordingly and also take that as a sign, not necessarily remove it. But okay, this is this food is giving me problems. What about it is giving me problems? Can I look to other ways to engage with it that might not cause me problems, i.e. if it's a lactose thing, you know, maybe you can try cheese or try lower lactose dairy and see if that helps and and be repairing and restoring your gut at the same time. Yes, I I totally echo your thought about how much because mm-hmm. that's that's why I, that's why I'm such a proponent of food journaling, but not necessarily with a weighing or measuring device. Mm-hmm. This one's from Pamela. She says, "Should you take probiotics if you have or had SIBO?" Oh, I love this question. I actually asked it to Dr. Jacoby because I have done so much research on it. Um. It's a tricky one because everybody has a different opinion and and everyone has a different opinion because everyone takes a different probiotic and they're at a different stage of their healing journey. And so whether it works or doesn't work, it really depends. And so, okay, so the question is, should you do it? I will tell you that the way that Dr. Jacoby does it is in the middle of treatment, which is very interesting. And something that she said to me that I want to pass on to your community because I have not forgotten about it is that SIBO is not a condition of too much of like, say, lactobacillus in your small intestine, right? So the the idea always has been with SIBO, there's an overgrowth of bacteria. So why are we adding in more of that bacteria 
into the small intestine when we're trying to get rid of it. Well, it that in she's right. Like it's never been in a situation where there's too much of a certain any specific probiotic strain or species in the small intestine. It's just an overgrowth in general, period, end of story, right? So I think the way that you have to think about it, and this is not easy, it's not easy at all. First of all, you have to understand that there is no one probiotic that is going to be right for everyone. There is no such thing, no matter what. I I work with a probiotic company that I absolutely love and adore, but even still, I would never tell anybody that this is the end-all be-all because it's not the truth, no matter what an influencer tries to sell you on. So um, the what you have to do is you have to look at your specific condition, which if it's SIBO, then you know it's SIBO, and the symptoms that are associated with it. And then you have to work with your practitioner on a probiotic that is conducive for the right strains that you personally need. There's so much to unpack there, but in order to find the right probiotic for you for this specific condition, that's what you have to do. It's not easy. I'm not saying that, but that's that's sort of the answer. How does somebody do that? So it would require testing of the different bacteria that's in your gut. And again, that's not even easy, but also I think that there are specific research strains that work with different conditions. And so if you're working with a, a with a good SIBO uh, doctor, they know what those are. And mm-hmm. also the thing is too, like some strains, I have a post on my website all about strains and species for probiotics because there's so many of them and they're not the same thing and this, that, and the other. Um, and you, you really have to drill down and, and understand like what is, what strain is going to be conducive for, let's say constipation dominant SIBO, because that would be different than diarrhea dominant SIBO hydrogen versus methane. So, I mean, again, it, it is complicated and that's why I think this question keeps coming up over and over because almost no one can figure out the exact one. And so if you want my personal experience opinion, it's that when I was first healing, I did not take a probiotic. I, no matter what I tried personally, I found that it just didn't work. But now that I'm healed, absolutely. I take one every single day. So. Hmm. Okay. This is from, so- yeah, <laughs> that was it. Um, okay. So if, if this is from Sophie, she says, if there is no way of testing, Um, She says she lives in a country where doctors have never heard of SIBO and no testing is available. Is there any way of knowing if it's SIBO or some other gut issue like dysbiosis or poor digestion? It's this this one's tricky because I find that when this is the case with people, they're just really in the Instagram and Dr. Google rabbit hole. And without an appropriate diagnosis, it can be really hard, but, 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 but what I will say too, is that there are plenty of testing options that you can do that. You don't have to go into a practitioner's office. And then if you can find a, uh, an online practitioner of any, you know, whatever you're like, if it's SIBO, find a SIBO online practitioner who has a virtual practice that you trust, because the thing is you can get all the testing in the world done and have it shipped off forever, but you can't 
you, you can't really say, oh, yeah, this is what the results mean. You have to, you still have to have someone that's going to interpret the results for you and get you on a healing path. So is there a way to do it without? I mean, no, you can't be diagnosed without medical help. I mean, that's that's what I personally believe. Could you go down a rabbit hole and self-diagnose? Absolutely. But if it's not the right diagnosis, you might be doing things that are going to be more harmful to you or you might be failing to do things that will be super helpful for you. So I don't think there's any, I, maybe you have another thought on it, but I don't know what else. I think it's an unfortunate situation, you know? Yeah. I mean, I know I totally, I totally feel you. It's hard and it's, you know, this is where the internet is helpful because you can connect with practitioners over the internet who can help you and who can give you guidance. So if you need, if you're really struggling, like there are people, there are doctors who now work virtually with people and they might be able to give you some insight or even ship you something so that you can do it. Or, you know, you can, you can work with people, professional medical professionals, and you're not limited to the doctors that are within your zip code or, you know, whatever, um, when you live overseas. So it's, it's, I it's it's hard but at the same time it's unfortunately if you actually want to get better you've got to get a proper diagnosis and you've got to work with people who know what they're doing um cuz that'll save you so much time you know it's it's hard so yeah I agree okay this one's from Allison she says how do you live a daily life while doing no slash low fodmap diets protocols are so strict and so stressful Yes. And this is, this is all wrapped up in very succinct question. The problem with healing is because you have these protocols that are so strict and they're stressful. And so the combination of eating fewer foods, um, eating, you know, things that might be not helping the situation and then also having the stress compounded on it just creates a an absolute disaster. And I know exactly how you feel, Allison, because I have been there before. The reason I now have I have reasonable SIBO because number one, if you have SIBO, you do not have to follow a no FODMAP diet. A lot of people will say, okay, uh, well, I can't have blueberries because they're high FODMAP. No, the truth is that I think technically low FODMAP would be a hand, like a half cup or fourth cup. I don't even remember right now, but of blueberries. So for me personally, I would much rather be able to add a half cup of blueberries into my diet than have none because number one, you're getting more polyphenols, you're getting more nutrients, you're getting a more diverse diversity. So it's not as stressful. And then because it's not as stressful, you just feel better about it overall. Um, that's one thing I would say is just, you have to think about, do you absolutely have to be following the diet that you're following today? And if you do, then that's, that's your, yeah, like you just have to make it as, um, easy for you as possible and don't continue to eliminate more when you might not really need to. Second thing I will say about protocols is that if you if you have been told by your practitioner that you absolutely a thousand percent need to follow a strict protocol, then be sure you trust that practitioner enough to know what he or she is talking about to to make sure that it isn't that stressful for you because there's no protocol that should be having you eat five foods daily in order to quote unquote heal because mm -hmm. you could you can do so much long term damage. I did. I know. I've researched it. That this is why I can talk so openly about it. 
in my book, actually, A Gutsy Girl's Bible, I teach you how to make your own templated diet. Uh, not templated diet. I don't believe in template diets, but I, I teach you how to work with whatever you're, you've been diagnosed with and your practitioner in doing what's right for you. And I think that that's so important. And we have forgotten that art of listening to our bodies and being able to say, yep, this feels good. Nope, this doesn't feel good. Instead of saying, oh, this is not paleo. I cannot eat this no matter what, even though my body is completely fine with it. I feel great. It's less stressful if I just eat this piece, these nuts or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I would say um, is that you really just have to kind of create it on your own and not feel the stress and the burden of it. If you are a female and you are living in the modern world, you likely deal with some form of anxiety and or stress and or sleep issues on a semi-regular basis like me. And one of the things that's not talked about often that can help support stress and anxiety is magnesium. Many people understand that magnesium helps sleep, but the body actually needs magnesium for so much more than that because it's involved in 80% of the body's metabolic reactions and about 75% of people are not getting enough magnesium, especially women, because stress burns up magnesium. One critical thing you can do today to support your adrenals, hormones, and mental health is to take a compound magnesium supplement like Magnesium Breakthrough. Stress and anxiety deplete your magnesium levels. Low magnesium levels can contribute to more anxiety. It's a vicious cycle. So by supplementing with Magnesium Breakthrough, you can break that cycle because you'll be getting seven unique forms of organic full-spectrum magnesium for stress relief and better sleep. I've been taking two every night before bed for the last couple of years, and it's one of the only nutrients that I'm like, this is, this has to happen daily. And there's a new and improved formula with Magnesium Breakthrough, so they're making it more absorbable, which I really appreciate because they want to make sure we're getting our magnesium and we need it. Uh, For our exclusive offer, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash wellfed. Our code is wellfed10. You will also save if you buy in bulk, which we do. And I just went ahead and added a subscription because I keep running out and I know that I'm going to be taking two every night. I know my husband is too. So we buy the bulk option. I just went ahead and did a subscription every three months, which gave us an additional discount on top of that. So that's nice. Again, our link is mag breakthrough. So it's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com forward slash wellfed. Our coupon code for 10% off is WellFed10. Um, this is an interesting question. This is from Elizabeth. She says, I'd love to know if hormone replacement therapy can be the, re- the reason why all of my gut-related symptoms disappeared. I'd, I've had HA and with that, a variety of digestive issues. In preparation for IVF, I took hormones over three for over three months and I haven't had any issues since. So I also did a lot of this when I was getting ready for my IVF cycle, so I can relate. Um, And I was actually looking at this question, I was thinking a lot about it and about my own journey. And what I will say is, I think the first thing you have to understand is um, ask yourself why you think the hormone replacement therapy worked. So if you understand what exactly the hormone replacement therapy did for you and what your status was prior to taking it, it might help you uncover the reasons why it's working. However, after saying that, I can tell you that when I was taking all of that stuff before my IVF uh, cycle as well, I I mean, I, I didn't feel great. I wouldn't say I felt as good as you did. 
but what I will say is that in the months that followed it, I, I was a mess. Like it, so while it worked for a while and I thought that everything was fine, it actually did a lot of reverse progress. So I wouldn't necessarily say that you're in the clear for good and forever, but I do think that there could be a component to why it worked depending on where you were at when you started. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me see. Where are we at? We've got some time. Okay. Okay. We're good. Okay. Carly, she says, is there a right order in which to consume foods? This is a big question. <laughs> so I get this question a lot. The whole pairing foods together, eating this food first and this food last. Um, what to eat first early in the day versus the end of the day? Can consuming foods earlier in the day help reduce bloating at the end of the day? I mean, I, I think there is, like, it can. I, I do think that it can. A lot of people will not eat certain things first thing in the morning because they don't want to be bloated and miserable the rest of the day, which I totally get. But you still, at the end of the day, have to understand why. Why is it that you're afraid to eat this food until the end of the day? Because ultimately, you we want to get to a place where you don't have to ask these questions, where you can eat freely and just live your life, right? So that's that's what I had to do. And that's what I think once once you're able to do that, you can live a more quote unquote normal life. So is there a right order? Um, I, I, I just think it's going to be completely dependent upon you. I do think that if you are concerned about, cause a lot of people in this community, they're like, okay, I know where every single bathroom is on the way to work. And I think if that's you, then you know, Every day you have yogurt and toast and butter that something in that combination is not working for you. And so you need to understand. So what I would do, what I would say to do is let's say that's your issue. Then one day I would have the yogurt, not the toast and the butter, maybe have yogurt and some kind of protein or something. See, do you need to stop for the bathroom on the way? If not, well, then maybe it was the toast and the butter and then maybe eat that later in the day if you really need to have that is my point. But I think that there, there definitely can be, but is there a right way? No. Is there a right way for you? Yes. But if there has to be a right and a wrong way, then I would personally rather understand why and fix the problem and move on. Mm. Yes. hundred percent agree. You're, I mean, it's, it's completely individual to you. And so not saying that, that it's, there's not some perfect combination or something that's going to work best for you in terms of timing and all of that kind of stuff. But largely, I do feel like sometimes things are marketed as tips or tricks or, you know, when you should eat, how much you should eat at each meal, you should eat a bigger breakfast and then your lunch or your dinner will be smaller. And then, you know, you're not going to gain as much weight or whatever. Like, I think we we get so clouded with diet culture, you know, of like, well, how am I? There's got to be a right way to do this. There's got to be a perfect way to do this. And truthfully, there isn't. And the tips and the tricks and all of that, like there's nothing that you should be doing. And and when you can drop that and leave that, you know, behind you, you can move forward with what's right for me and how can I make changes that are right for me? And your your ability to assess that and understand that improves because you're not so clouded with all the other crap advice. So Love it. Okay, so this is from Tina. She says, once you have had SIBO, are you more prone to suffering from it again? 
Yes, hands down, a thousand percent. Yes, you are prone. If you don't know what caused it in the first place, even with a lot, you know, the herbals, the antibiotics, the even the elemental diet, you will relapse again if you don't understand where it was coming from. I, like I said earlier, I did four to five times, and it is it's a really really tricky thing. I will say that so you are either diagnosed and sometimes with both, like I was, but with hydrogen dominant SIBO, which typically is more of the diarrhea versus constipation or methane dominant SIBO, which is typically more constipation um, with symptoms. So there's both of those. And the way that you go about treating them is different. And even then beyond that is that the methane dominant SIBO is a lot harder and a lot more stubborn and can reoccur more. So I think that's just something that's important for you, Tina, to know is that it, if you're going to suffer from it again or not, a lot of times does depend on if you are hydrogen or methane dominant. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just goes back to, you have to understand the, the underlying. How do you know if you're hydrogen or methane dominant? So that is a breath test. Yeah. Uh, that's the, still the kind of the gold standard is the breath test. And I have tutorials exactly on how to do it. I've done it so many times. It's like eight vials. You get sent it in the mail. Um, it's a whole like 24 to 48 hour process of, you know, preparing from a dietary standpoint. And then you drink a solution right before doing the breath test. You do these vials, you mail them, and then they let you know um, based on how your levels are rising for, from hydrogen and or methane. And then, uh, yeah, then you find out if you're hydrogen or methane dominant. Okay. All right. Um, this is from Cindy. She says, I have interstitial cystitis. Mm -hmm. Is it difficult to use some of the protocols for gut health? How do I bridge that when I can't have anything tart, vinegars, fermented, or with any citrus? I loved this question. I don't even know a lot about that condition. Actually, I know almost nothing. What I do know is that Dr. Jacoby, that was one, she mentioned three conditions that if a patient comes in and says that they have been diagnosed with that, she will test them for SIBO. And that was one of them. That one and endometriosis and one other. Yeah. So that's something that your listeners might be interested in knowing. Um, but so anyway, so you have that. And I'm guessing that maybe the reason is you also have SIBO. So protocols for gut health are very different than protocols for gut healing. And I would say protocols for gut health are the things that you're saying you can't have would be the vinegars, fermented things, citrus. So I, I think really it comes down to, is it just you thinking that you need to have these foods or has someone, a professional told you to have them? Because for a lot of people, they don't have those gut healthy things when they're trying to heal their gut, if that makes sense. Um, and so what I would say is that don't, don't be so concerned about trying to have all the gut healthy things right now, because you probably are in a place where you just need to heal first. So you need to focus on working with a practitioner who's well-versed in SIBO to tell you what that dietary approach might include or look like until you heal. Is IBS always like undiagnosed SIBO or can it be caused by other things? So IBS is the umbrella for SIBO. So 
IBS is just, as everyone knows, it's just a, it's a syndrome. So it's made up of a lot of different things. And it is, it's just a category of functional gut disorders. IBS is, IBS is IBS is IBS. Like it's, it could be many different things. SIBO is, um, IBS is a cause. SIBO is a cause of IBS. And it is the biggest one. So just think of it like that as IBS is your umbrella and SIBO is underneath it. Mm-hmm. This is from Liz World Vegan. She says, how can you check for CFO versus SIBO? What's CFO? Okay. Yeah. So there is a post on my site about SIBO, CFO, and candida overgrowth. Oh, it's so confusing. Gosh, it's just, <laughs> oh, it's the dickens. I tell you, like every time I get... Well, it is. It's so exhausting. It's like, what are yeah. they going to come up with next? But right. it's, yeah. And you know what? Here's the thing. Um, I've heard this stated many, many times. Uh, Dr. Satish Rao, I think, he he always talks about the problem of SIBO and SIFO is that it's it's unfortunately a man-made thing because their the diagnoses are on the rise because of everything that is happening in our current day, right? Like just the amount of stress that everyone's under, the way it's not even our diets what we're eating, but it's the way that the food has been processed and then and then we're eating it. You know, it's like all the things and these are man-made things. So to answer your question, then CFO is small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And then SIBO is the bacterial overgrowth. So the difference is a bacteria versus a yeast. Now, as of not that long ago, so please don't quote me on this. I should look it up, but I don't know. There was no CFO breath test but there is one for SIBO. So I think what uh, practitioners do a lot is because there's a candida, there's a way to test for candida overgrowth and there's a way to test for SIBO. So if it's not SIBO or candida, typically they will give a SIFO diagnosis and treat for that. Got it. Okay. But I don't know about the testing. I should look that up because I'm curious now, but as of not that long ago, there wasn't. Yeah. Hopefully that'll change. Um, okay. This is from Lindsay. She said, I had SIBO for about seven years and finally cleared it after removing an infected root canal tooth. This is so like important. Anybody listening and using both herbal and Western medicine antibiotics. The only remaining symptom I have is stabbing pain upon eating my first food of the day. Six different doctors I've seen have never heard of this and can give me, can't give me any leads on how to resolve it. I would love to hear from an expert if this is something typical for people with SIBO. Oh, this is a good, good question. Um, oh, I love that, that the infected root canal and then using the herbal and Western. That's so awesome. Um, okay, here's, here's, well, first of all, do you, I'm wondering if she truly thinks that the stabbing pain is still, is still correlated to the SIBO. The reason I asked that is because she says that it has finally cleared, which tells me she has been tested for it that, and she's negative. And in which case, if you don't have SIBO anymore, then is that stabbing pain really truly from the SIBO? Um, the other thing that I will say, though, is SIBO does present with some very strange symptoms for, very, for like a select uh, population. 
what I mean by that is, um, okay, so I don't know how long ago she took the antibiotics and I also don't know what antibiotics they were, but I will give you something that happened to me is I, after a round of, I, I think that my doctor at the time had said that it was the neomycin that this can sometimes happen with, I became actually allergic to eggs. Um, and it was the weirdest thing I have. I, I documented and wrote it about it on my website. But basically, after I got done with all of that, I was perfectly fine. I felt great. But the eggs sent me to the ER with so like I thought I was my stomach was going to die. So I, I know that the stabbing pain, this doesn't sound like as severe as that. And it's not that she's eating the same the same food. But he did tell me that sometimes and, and it went away. It, I, to this day, I eat eggs and I'm just fine. Thank God. <laughs> but, um, I'm wondering if that's any, like, if that has anything to do with it, it's something to consider. Um, and then the other thing to consider that I was going to say, I'm just looking at this again is, oh, just like, um, a atypical symptoms in general. So for me, I had these really weird mouth problems. So again, I don't know, but I also am not sure that it's necessarily correlated with the SIBO. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually really good insight. Like you think it might still be this caused by the SIBO might actually be something else. So, okay, let's see. We've got two other questions here. Dana, I've had methane overgrowth issues a few years back and had to do antibiotics twice about six months apart. Now I'm doing a lot better overall, but is it always something I should keep my eye on? Wondering if you have any tips for when you notice symptoms slowly coming up to stop them in their tracks. For me, it's usually bloating and constipation creeps up after travel or having company restaurants, basically when the schedule is thrown off. Yes, I actually do. So if you are not treating it anymore, the one thing that I that I would highly recommend you look up and talk to your doctor about, this is what I did, this is, a, it's been a lifesaver, is something called dysbiocide, D-Y-S-B-I-O-C-I-D-E. I have no affiliation with them, but it literally saved me. Um, so in 2018, when I healed for good, my practitioner at the time said, check this out, look at everything. And in fact, I've written about it on my website. I have laid out every single ingredient, what it is. And just, I did a ton of research on it. Cause I'm like, oh my gosh, this stuff actually works. What he told me was anytime you feel even a little bit off and you think it might be coming back because like you, Dana, I also had methane, which is stubborn. Um, he said, if you do, then take this for a week and then three weeks off, see how you feel. And it, it has saved me. So I'm not recommending any, but I, I, what I am recommending is look it up and talk to your practitioner about it. Um, and then the other thing I would say is this is might sound super woo woo, but I did it and it worked. So much of this has to do with mindset because when you have the SIBO, you have a methane overgrowth. It is so frustrating. It hurts. It's physically and emotionally draining and you're in the thick of it for a very, very long time. And so anytime a little symptom, you start to feel it in your stomach your mind and your body reverts to that time that was absolutely miserable for you. And so the same thing happened to me. But what I started to tell myself is every single time I would say, your SIBO is gone, you are healed, you are good. And I practice that to this day. I practice it to this day. If I feel like even a tinge of anything, I'm like, nope, your SIBO is gone, you're healed, you're good, live your life. Mm -hmm. And I swear by that little, little thing. So those two things, I 
believe in so much. Yeah, mindset. Okay, the, this last one is um, just about SIBO and treatment. So is it possible, this is from Michaela and from Ajon33, she says, uh, both of them say, what can I do to heal while nursing? Are there any safe nerves? Ner- nerves. Herbs. <laughs> and uh, that sounds, that's a new word. Um, and how to treat SIBO while breastfeeding. Is it possible? I, I love this when I hear herbs now because we say herbs in the United States. Um, Dr. Narala is in Australia and she says herbs. Herbs, herbs, right? It's herbs. It's not herbs. Um, I actually, Noel, would, I would prefer to have you answer this one. And the reason is because I'm not a medical practitioner and I don't want to say anything while I do a lot of research and I write about it and I cite it on my website for you to then take to your doctor. I don't give any advice around herb, especially if you're a nurse and also I've never been pregnant. So I think that you would probably be the best person to answer this question. Well, I'm going to, you know, my answer is if you are breastfeeding and first of all, it goes back to exactly what you said in your pillars, which is you've got to get a proper diagnosis and you've got to be working with a qualified practitioner. So your qualified practitioner should know if herbs, if the herbs that are required or whatever is required, whether it's antibiotics, whether what, you know, whatever that has to be like given to you by a doctor who knows what you're doing and then also cleared with potentially a pharmacist. For example, when I had a poison IV reaction and it was out of control, I had to go to the urgent care because it had gone, whatever, systemic and it was just all over my body. And so I had to take a steroid. And the doctor said, you need to talk to the pharmacist. Now, I could do my research on my own, but the truth of the matter is that medication does get through breast milk. And I had to nurse separately from when I took the medication and I had to work with the pharmacist on that. So while there are a lot of things that are absolutely safe for breastfeeding, pregnancy is not the best time to be testing out herbs or, you know, adaptogens and stuff like that. Like, no, in general, stay clear of that stuff. With breastfeeding, there is a lot more. You can do a lot more. So taking specific medications, specifically when you're taking herbs that are going to be like antiviral herbs, for example, that are going to like really get into your gut and address the root cause. Most of that, I would think, again, I'm not the authority on this, but like most of that should be generally safe. You may have to, depending on the medication or the herb or whatever, you may have just to be aware of, you know, when is it, when when are you taking it versus when are you breastfeeding? Um, a lot of the concern with certain um, herbs, too, is just that some of them can reduce your milk supply. Um, I never, you know... I took a lot of different things and I never noticed that. And I actually tried to take some things to reduce my milk supply when I was really struggling with my mastitis infections. And it just never it had no impact on me, but it can have an impact for other people. So um, I think if you're working with a qualified practitioner, you are going to that's going to be something. First of all, make sure your individual needs and what's causing your SIBO is going to be unique to you. So what you need is going to be unique to you as well. And depending on who you're working with, they'll be able to guide you in how you can treat SIBO while you're breastfeeding. But there's absolutely no reason, I think, that you shouldn't be able to do a lot of things, if not all things, to start working on the root causes of your SIBO while you are breastfeeding. See, I told you. 
I didn't really you answer would... the question, but I did. You'd be fantastic. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Anything else that you um, have or want to say? Because we are at time. We've got, I told you we'd get to all the questions. We did it. So I'm proud of us. But um, anything else from you other than, of course, everybody, please go get her new book. It's on Amazon. It's called A Gutsy Girl's Bible. It's got all the things in there. I have the PDF and it's very um, detailed. And you have even recipes in there too, right? I call them creations because <laughs> I teach people how to simplify and customize. And what I learned on my journey, it was that I, it was really hard to follow really big recipes because I needed so much to be able to customize them. So I, I call them creations. They're like five ingredients or less. And no, it's not a awesome, it's not a huge recipe book like you have, because that's not what I do. So <laughs> I leave that to people like you and I just make things simple. Love it. Okay. We'll link to all the um, stuff in the show notes. Listen to a Gutsy Girl podcast. Um, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can just go and search it. And um, Instagram follow Sarah. It's um, a, a Gutsy Girl is her handle. So that's G-U-T-S-Y. So a Gutsy Girl. Um, thank you, Sarah, for being here. Thanks for answering all these questions. Everybody go follow her on Instagram. And I'm sure, Sarah, you and I are going to talk again in the near future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. All right. For more from Sarah, it's uh, a gutsygirl.com. For more from me, coconutsandcuttaballs.com. Thanks so much for being here, guys. I will talk to you next week. <laughs>